Woe to you of earth and sea. Welcome to Satan is My Superhero, a show about art, culture, history, and the devil. I'm your host, Judas Falling. In this episode, I will try and decipher the attitude towards the LGBT community throughout history. There should be no doubt same-sex relationships and transgenderism predate history. In fact, I would go as far as to say they predate Homo sapiens. They have been observed in other primates, all kinds of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish and even insects. It would be ludicrous to infer our evolutionary line somehow has some sort of cisgendered heterosexual purity going all the way back to the very first two single-celled organisms that got it on. Oh, evolution. Well, there's your first hurdle. The earliest evidence we have in recorded history dates back to rock art depicting men with erect penises engaging in what looks like sex from somewhere between 9,600 BCE and 5,000 BCE. But the whole planet is only 6,000 years old. Where do you get your science from? There is Bronze Age art depicting figures with breasts and male genitals. What have you drawn? My dream woman. Oh, she seems to have a penis. Oh yeah, boom chicka wow wow. Archaeologists in Prague have found a male buried in women's clothing dating to between 2900 BCE and 2500 BCE. This may have been a transgender person and we can only assume whoever buried them continued to respect the individual's chosen gender identity. Or maybe it was just their mates playing one last prank. We offer you, Goddess Mazana, the mortal remains of our much-loved tribe-mate Ivan. Excuse me, but what is going on back there? This is a very serious burial ritual. What is all the giggling about? Oh, oh, I see, yes, very funny. While same-sex relationships are commonplace throughout the ancient world's many different mythologies, the earliest historical record of a real-life couple may come from Egypt around 2400 BCE. Kanemhotep and Nayan Akam were obviously wealthy, highly regarded employees of the king. They were his head manicurists at the palace. Now that's not a translation thing, they were the king's nail technicians, among other titles inscribed on their tombs such as Keeper of the King's Things and Guardian of Secrets. The two men are buried together and are depicted holding each other standing nose to nose. Not all Egyptologists agree. I would argue they were not lovers but brothers, who like all siblings shared a deep and abiding bond from the womb to the tomb. You're an only child, aren't you? Obviously, because history mostly chronicles the lives of rich and powerful men, that is where these same-sex relationships are mostly documented. But I think we can assume it was going on among all classes and genders. The question for us is, was it being demonised? An early known law pertaining to the LGBT community comes from the Assyrian Empire sometime around 1075 BCE. If a man have intercourse with his brother in arms, they shall turn him into a eunuch. Ouch. It's not clear if this law applies to consenting intercourse between brothers in arms. It might well be a law about sexual assault. The early Hebrew texts claim Assyrian priests carried out what might be considered homosexual rituals like masturbating on the idols of male gods. The shrine prostitutes we mentioned in part one may have been young acolytes who offered themselves to men visiting the temple. So it's not clear the Assyrian lawmakers were what we would consider homophobic. 
This religious ritual aspect to homosexuality has been linked by many scholars to the outright homophobia in the Hebrew texts. It is believed their repudiation of such acts are based more in distancing themselves and their religion from their competitors than anything else. Hello, I hope you don't mind. I'd like to take a few moments of your time to talk about Yahweh. Oh, to be honest, I just don't have room in my schedule for another God right now. Uh, on Tuesdays, I'm at the Temple of Asher for sex and feasting. Then Wednesday, I'm at the Temple of Marduk for sex and feasting. Fridays, of course, are sex and feasting at the Temple of Ishtar. Saturdays, uh, what was it? Oh, I'm sex and feasting in the morning with Naboo and then with Nurgle all night. Oh, no. Yahweh is the one and only God. You don't have to do any of that with Yahweh. Really? Oh, yeah. Yahweh hates having a good time. The Zoroastrian Bible, for want of a better description, the Avesta, written sometime between 600 BCE and 300 BCE, states... The man that lies with mankind as man lies with womankind, or as woman lies with mankind, is the man that is a demon. Now, I don't accuse anyone of plagiarism, but... That sure did sound a lot like Leviticus. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Amen. In 486 BCE, King Darius legalized Leviticus for Jews living in the Persian Empire. King Darius of the guaranteed to last forever mighty Achaemenid Empire. The Israelites have put forth another petition. Oh, what is it this time? They've come up with a new reason to kill each other and would like it to be made a law. I don't see a downside. Whenever talking about LGBT in the ancient world, the Greek attitude to it will often get held up as an example of how pre-Christian society viewed it. I think this is problematic. Often tangled up and confused with what we in the modern era would define as homosexuality is the accepted and often state-sanctioned classical Greek practice of pedestria, where older men would have a sexual relationship with an adolescent boy. I don't think I need to explain. It's controversial to mix this up with same-sex love between consenting adults, and it was then too. We don't really know how the general public felt about such things. We only have the opinions of the privileged class to go on. Some Greek writers did question the practice at the time. Born in 428 BCE, Plato is the perfect example of the confusion and controversy surrounding the topic then as now. He claimed the most powerful relationship a human can have is between two men who desperately want to get funky with each other, but never do. Hence the term platonic relationship. What are we doing today? The boss wants us to lay in a bed of hyacinth. Together? Well, yeah, it's a two-man job. Oh, the job. You mean like planting flowers because we're gardeners? Yeah, what, what did you think I was talking about? Planting flowers. Okay, now, have you seen my seed drill? Yes, it's beautiful. What? I mean, it's near your nutsack. My what? Your sack of nuts. Oh, my lunch. Yes, it is. Alrighty then, you start plowing and I'll come behind spreading the seed. Okay, but I need a minute first. In some of his writings, Plato seems to praise and argue for pedestry, but is definitely against fully grown males having relations with each other. So, that's weird. It's all the body hair. He was afraid they'd get stuck together like Velcro. He also argues the age of the younger partner should not be too young. Puberty being the defining line. 
Now, we can argue that at a time when the average life expectancy was somewhere in your 30s, starting your sexual activity straight after puberty was, you know, a reasonable idea. And we're just showing our modern age privilege when we push that age of consent out to a time when we hope our teens are better emotionally developed. I know history should always be viewed through the context of the times, but as a dad living in the Enlightenment, I'm uncomfortable with Plato. As I said, the view that the ancient Greeks had a very liberal, progressive view of same-sex relationships may not be as cut and dry as it would seem. The city-state of Athens had this law. If any Athenian shall have prostituted his person, he shall not be permitted to become one of the nine archons, nor to discharge the office of priest nor to act as an advocate for the state, nor shall he hold any office whatsoever, at home or abroad, whether filled by lot or by election. He shall not be sent as a herald. He shall not take part in debate, nor be present at public sacrifices when the citizens are wearing garlands. He shall wear none. And he shall not enter within the limits of the place that has been purified for the assembling of the people. If any man who has been convicted of prostitution act contrary to these prohibitions, he shall be put to death. I can't wear garlands. It's these damn horns. The official Roman attitude to sex had always been about domination and social hierarchy. It was okay to have a same-sex relationship with a social lesser as long as you never took the passive position. A law introduced in the Republic era known as the Lex Scantinia covered this and was often used as a political tool to harass and negate rivals. As always, we don't have much idea of how accepted LGBT was among the majority of the empire's peoples. Julius Caesar was famously bisexual with a voracious appetite. Known for seducing the wives of rivals and just about anyone he was left alone with, in the parlance of my people, he'd be called a root rat. Caesar, it has come to my attention that you seduced my wife at last night's orgy. Oh, that was your wife? Yes. Oh dear, how awful. What are you doing? Taking my clothes off. You should disrobe as well. What? Why? We'll show her she's not the only one in your marriage who can play the adultery with Caesar card. Suetonius quotes a speech made by an enemy of Caesar who called him... Every woman's man and every man's woman. Caesar was also accused by political rivals of allowing himself to be used by the king of Bithynia while serving as Rome's ambassador. Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus called Caesar Queen of Bithynia. We know Octavian was accused by Mark Antony of being effeminate and earning his inheritance from Caesar by providing sexual favours. According to Suetonius again, Mark Antony's brother Lucius claimed a young Octavian had given himself to a former consul of Rome for a very large sum of money and... He used to singe his legs with red-hot nutshells to make the hair grow softer. Don't knock it until you've tried it. Trust me, it works. We can see LGBT, while apparently being commonplace at the highest levels of Roman civilization, could and would be demonized for political expediency. As mentioned, because we only get the writings of elite males about predominantly other elite males, we can't really gauge a full picture of the views in Roman society as a whole. We get a snippet of a less politically charged view from early sceptic writer Sextus Empiricus around 200 CE as he questions Roman law. Amongst the Persians, it is the habit to indulge in intercourse with males. But amongst the Romans, it is forbidden by law to do so. 
So Sextus implies no matter what we've heard about the 1%, among greater Roman society, man-on-man love is illegal in his time. He also goes on to compare Roman virtue with that of other cultures. Amongst us, sodomy is regarded as shameful or rather illegal, but by the Germanic, they say, it is not looked on as shameful but as a customary thing. Sextus does not give us any caveats about the difference between tops and bottoms as we have seen among the Roman elites and implies a heavy social stigma around the practice, calling it shameful. He also compares Roman ideas of masculinity with that of their ancient rivals. No man here would dress himself in a flowered robe reaching to the feet, although this dress, which with us is thought shameful, is held to be highly respectable by the Persians. So Sextus gives us a more conservative view of Roman society than we've seen. My God, man, what are you wearing? It's the very latest thing from Persia. No one can see your manly man bits. Who wants to see my manly man bits? Well, I do. Now we get to the most controversial LGBT figure in Roman history, Elagabalus. Raised to the purple at age 14, assassinated at 18, it is difficult to pass out what is fact and what is a gender-inspired propaganda when discussing any emperor. But to make matters worse, Elagabalus was of Syrian descent, so you can imagine Roman writers had a lot of leeway to go wild with their fantasies about just how un-Roman Elagabalus was. It doesn't matter if the stories about the teenage emperor are true or not, it does give us an insight into the demonization of LGBT in the Roman era. Roman historian Cassius Dio, who served as a politician under emperors before and after Elagabalus, wrote, He married many women and had intercourse with even more without any legal sanction. Yet it was not that he had any need of them himself, but simply that he wanted to imitate their actions when he should lie with his lovers. Dio also wrote, He carried his lewdness to such a point that he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision. The idea of performing such an operation on the most powerful person in the known world with third century technology must have been terrifying for any surgeon at the time. So, what do you think, Doc? Wait, where are you going? Guards? Oh, come on, guys, we've talked about this. You have to grab them before they jump in the river. That's the fourth one this week. As I've already stated, we don't really know how much of this is true. Dio had good reason to paint Elagabalus in a particular light as to please the next emperor, Severus Alexander. But that's kind of not the point. The fact that Dio took this specific line in his demonising of Elagabalus implies to me that it was being demonised and was not generally accepted in the broader Roman community at the time. To further this point, the Historia Augusta claims Severus Alexander deported all male sex workers, some of them with whom that scourge had carried on a most pernicious intimacy, being drowned by shipwreck. That scourge being a reference to Alexander's predecessor, as discussed, Alagabalus. While being famously contradictory and an unreliable narrator, the Historia Augusta, possibly written as early as the 4th century CE, does give us an insight into the attitudes to LGBT in the late Roman era. It depicts Elagabalus as a terrible human and openly equates that to the failed emperor's LGBT status. Personally, the Historia Augusta is my preferred toilet paper. From this point onwards, Christianity becomes more prevalent throughout the Roman world and begins driving the homophobia bus, with laws specifically banning same-sex coupling creeping into the historical records. 
Successors to Rome's dominance over Europe, the Visigoths instituted this law. If any man, whosoever of any age or race, whether he belongs to the clergy or the laity, should be convicted by competent evidence of the commission of the crime of sodomy, he shall, by order of the king or any judge, not only suffer emasculation, but also the penalty prescribed by ecclesiastical degree for such offences. And sadly, by emasculation, they don't mean putting the offender's hair in pigtails and calling him Susan all day. Always thought you had such a nice set of balls. While dating back much further as an oral history, the Jewish Talmud was finally written down somewhere between the 3rd and 7th century. This document of rabbinic law is not favourable to LGBT, referencing passages from the Torah and in some cases implying natural disasters are in part caused by same-sex activities. In the 6th century, the Byzantine emperor, most famous for his law reforms, Justinian, was thinking along the same lines when he included this quote while commenting on the existing legislation against homosexuals and blasphemers. For because of any such crime, there are famines, earthquakes and pestilences. Now class, does anyone know what causes earthquakes? Plate tectonics. No, it's men holding hands. In the 7th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury decreed a woman who masturbated or committed a sexual act with another woman would be forced to do three years' penance. This doesn't seem so bad when you compare it to the city of Orléans 500 years later where they were performing female circumcision for the first offence and burning at the stake for the third. On a personal note, I know in the current climate and the culture war that seems to be getting worse and worse every day, it's hard to get anyone to agree on anything. But could we all agree at least that at the point you reach female circumcision as an answer to anything, you've taken a wrong turn in life. It's time to retrace your steps, have a good hard look at yourself. In the 11th century, St. Peter Damien wrote the Liber Gomorianus for Pope Leo IX. In it, Damien describes the four possible ways men can commit sodomy. Damien also judged the degree of how much sin each of the four stages was worth. First and least sinful was masturbation, then mutual masturbation, followed by intercourse between the thighs. What? Is that even a thing? And finally, the most sinful act, anal intercourse. Peter believed punishment should be dealt out in accordance with how far up his four-part daisy chain of sin the evildoer went. But most importantly, Damien mentions our favourite superhero, justifying this whole episode. The devil's artful fraud devises these degrees of failing into ruin such that the higher the level the unfortunate soul reaches in them, the deeper it sinks in the depths of hell's pit. What a vivid imagination Damien had. He came up with four different sex acts all by himself. He must have been exhausted after all of that. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been three days since my last confession. What is it that you have to confess, my child? I'm afraid I may have committed sodomy. Oh dear, did you masturbate? No, not that. Did you and another mutually masturbate? No. Did you have intercourse between the thighs? Is that even a thing? No. Did you have anal intercourse? No. 
Well, what did you do that has got you so concerned? Apart from those vanilla things you just mentioned, we did everything you could possibly imagine. I just told you everything I can possibly imagine. Oh, oh well, forget I said anything. How was your weekend? In the 12th century, we have Hildegard of Bingen, a German nun who wrote down her hallucinations, claiming they were provided to her by the divine. According to Hildegard, Yahweh had a lot to say about the LGBT community. These perverted adulterers change their virile strength into perverse weakness, rejecting the proper male and female roles, and in their wickedness they shamefully follow Satan. And the creator also told Hildegard... A woman who takes up devilish ways and plays a male role in coupling with another woman is most vile in my sight. And so is she who subjects herself to such a one in this evil deed. Here in Hildegard's comments, we see a common thread we've already seen and are still seeing today. A distinct lack of imagination. Hildegard can consider two women pleasuring each other, but only if one plays the role of the man. It's almost as if the divine visions given to her by Yahweh only actually contained information her own subconscious already knew. The Crusader states in the 12th century came up with this little gem. If any adult is discovered to have willingly polluted himself in sodomic depravity, let him be burned, both the active and the passive partner. King Baldwin. The caliphate are at the gates. The city is about to fall. Send for Sir Geoffrey and his knights. We burned Sir Geoffrey for being a sodomite last week, and his knights fled back to Europe. All right, then. Get me Sir William and his men. It was Sir William, Sir Geoffrey sodomized your lordship. So we burned him too. His men have joined the caliphate. Okay. What about Sir Belfry? Burned. Sir Duncan? Burned. If we survive this, remind me to review our HR policy. In the 13th century, much-admired Christian blogger Thomas Aquinas acknowledged the sin of lesbianism, aligning it to the vice of sodomy, as mentioned in a letter written by... Self-proclaimed Apostle Paul... ...to the Romans. Just like St. Peter Damien before him, he also rates how bad each of the sins of unnatural vice are. Thomas defines unnatural vice as ways of having sex that will not result in babies. The worst of the four unnatural vices is bestiality. (laughs) But second worst is... The sin of sodomy, because use of the right sex is not observed. In third place on the scale of depravity... Not observing the natural manner of copulation. It's missionary style with the lights off, thinking of England or nothing at all. The least sinful, unnatural vice I think we're all pleased to know is masturbation. What are you doing in there? Nothing. Are you sure? Yes, please go away. Would Thomas Aquinas approve of what you're doing right now? He wouldn't think it's the worst. In the 14th century, King Philip IV of France ended the Knights Templars and burned their leadership at the stake with accusations of sodomy. He also accused Pope Boniface VIII of the same crime, showing us that homophobic demonization was Philip's go-to stick. I'm afraid, my dear king, that my knight has taken your bishop, and that's checkmate. You are gay! Philip's son-in-law, Edward II of England, was accused of having a sexual relationship with a Piers Gaveston. Edward had been a terrible king, upsetting his nobility left, right and centre. His own wife, Isabella, daughter of Philip, invaded England with a small army and the English seemed to have supported her, forcing Edward to abdicate in favour of their 14-year-old son, Edward III. 
Interestingly, there seems to be no contemporary account of Edward II's affair with Gaveston. The rumours only began to surface seven years after the king's mysterious death while in custody. Oh, Papa, little Edward III is asking uncomfortable questions about his father and seems bent on restoring his reputation. What can I do? Tell everyone he was gay. That's what I always do. Transgender or possibly intersex sex worker Rolandinia Rocalia was burned at the stake in Venice in the 14th century. One of the six judges presiding over the sodomy trial had enough pity on poor Rolandinia that he asked they be anaesthetized before lighting the pyre. And you thought they were all bloodthirsty psychopaths. All through Europe at this time, people were being executed for the crime of sodomy. History has only recorded a handful of their names and cases, but it was going on under the auspices of Christian morality. In the 16th century, King Henry VIII signed off on his infamous Buggery Act. The laws of this realm for the detestable and abominable vice of buggery committed with mankind or beast. It may, therefore, please the King's Highness with the assent of the Lord's spiritual and the commons of this present Parliament that the same offence be thenceforth adjudged felony and that the offenders shall suffer such pains of death. After Henry's death, Queen Mary scrapped the edict, but Elizabeth I brought it back. Despite what my half-wit, uh, I mean half-sister Mary may have said, I decree that buggery is now a capital offence again. Are you sure that's necessary, Your Highness? Well, let's face it. As a Catholic, every decision she has made was bound to be erroneous. She failed to produce an heir, and the Kingdom of England almost ended up with one of our Scottish cousins on the throne. There'll be none of those shenanigans from me. Less time in confession, more in the bedroom. Eh, what, what? In 1721, Katerina Link was beheaded for sodomy in Halberstadt, Germany. Prior to this, Link had served in several armies, always presenting as a male and going by different aliases. Link had made a strap-on penis and testicles out of leather and pig's bladder. Along with soldier comrades would frequent brothels and by Link's own account, never had any complaints about the homemade genitals from the sex workers. Excuse me, private. You've left your privates behind again. In 1717, Link married an 18-year-old Katerina Mulhan. Three years later, Mulhan's mother exposed the couple to the authorities who promptly arrested them both. At the trial, it was claimed Link's mother had been possessed by the devil and Satan had been a constant companion throughout Link's life. Mulhan claimed to be a naive maiden who was deceived by Link for the first year of their marriage and then violently abused. The court had Link inspected by the city physician, a surgeon and a midwife who reported... It could be concluded that the female member had not altogether been left alone, but that, during extensive vagabonding, it had undoubtedly been misused. Now, as salacious as this case is, I might have passed it over in this episode, as Mulhan's claim she had been deceived and abused may well be true. The court at the time certainly gave her benefit of the doubt up until a point, and I don't think a case of deception and abuse should really be called LGBT persecution. Why I've included this case, apart from the fact that my favourite superhero gets mentioned, is because the court documents unveil a rare glimpse into the attitudes at the time about transgender. It also shows us the seeds of the Enlightenment were beginning to sprout and we can see a tension between theology and the legal code. Jurists at this time are starting to question the validity of scripture as a basis of laws for all people. 
This tension would continue to grow throughout the 18th century and a number of European kingdoms would stop using the death penalty in sodomy cases and in some places decriminalise it altogether. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to oversell the progressive nature of this particular case. It still ended in horrific tragedy, not just for Link, but also the alleged victim Mulhan, but some of the jurists involved clearly tried to, if not save the couple's lives, at least reduce their suffering. They argued that because no semen was wasted, that perhaps this was not a sodomy case at all. As you should remember from part one, the standard definition for sodomy up until quite recently was not confined to anal sex, but any sexual activity not intended to place sperm in the vicinity of an egg. It also clearly stated in the documents that the Bible, from which all laws at the time spring, does not at any time mention female-on-female sex. So the court had to decide if any crime had been committed. You know, I'm not sure this is technically a crime. Read me the transcript detailing the sexual acts of these perverts again. Okay, Your Honour, but this time could you leave your pants on? In reference to interpretations of scripture, the Halberstadt court even tried to appeal to racism. If it had to be admitted that a woman did indeed commit abominations with another woman, this probably would refer mostly to Eastern women, those with a so-called floor of nature, a very large clitoris with which they could perpetrate such abominations. So nice white girls have small clitorises. Okay, got it. The court also tried to find biblical precedent for the use of dildos and the idea of women rubbing themselves or others. Although the semen, which is normally sent into another part of the spouse, is not truly mixed, at least there is rubbing and a search for the extinction of the libido. You must remain horny and pious at all times. While there is nothing in Scripture specifically, the document does land on interpretations of the self-proclaimed Apostle Paul quote about for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. These court documents also tell us that in the cases of female sodomy, it is standard practice to burn the offenders alive, but usually the evildoer is killed before the flames are ignited to prevent despair. So here we learn that lesbians and transgender people have been persecuted regularly enough to have a standard system in place. This document also recommends Link be put to death by the sword, because under Saxon law there needs to be a clear definition between sodomy with humans and sodomy with animals. The king at the time was asked if he could see his way clear to allowing Link to be beheaded, which was a kinder death than being burned alive. They also asked the king to allow Mulhan to only be imprisoned and not tortured, as would have been the standard practice in this case. Mulhan had continued the marriage and sexual relations with Link even after realising Link's secret. But reading between the lines, someone in this trial had some understanding of the complications that go along with a domestic violence slash abuse situation. So mercy, if you can call it that, was granted to Mulhan and she was able to avoid the torture component of her three-year prison sentence. Let's go, boys! I'm going to take a short break from the show right now to talk about my sponsors and Patreon. I don't currently have sponsors or Patreon, but if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by buying my novel. It's called Chaos Machine by Judas Fawley. It's available through Amazon. You don't need a Kindle to read it. Almost any digital device will do. Don't forget, Chaos Machine by Judas Fawley. Now, back to the show. In 1726, Londoner Margaret Clapp was charged with running a molly house, a place where gay men could meet, socialise and have sex with each other. 
a Samuel Stevens gave this testimony at her trial. On Sunday night, the 14th of November last, I went to the prisoner's house in Field Lane in Holborn, where I found between 40 and 50 men making love to one another, as they called it. Sometimes they would sit in one another's laps, kissing in a lewd manner and using their hands indecently. Then they would get up, dance and make curtsies and mimic the voices of women. Three of Margaret's clients were also tried and put to death by hanging. You have been charged with the act of consorting with unseemly type fellows at the residence of Mrs. Clapp on the 14th of November. How do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honour. Are you trying to sound like a woman? No, Your Honour. I've just got laryngitis. Bailiff, have this man hanged immediately. Laryngitis? I've never heard of such a thing. Next case. Oh dear, I seem to have picked up a little tickle in my throat that's affecting my voice. Bailiff, have you hanged that man already? Yes, Your Honour. I was going to ask him if he knew of a remedy for this bloody laryngitis. In 1749, a pamphlet called Satan's Harvest Home was anonymously published, attacking the perceived growth of homosexuality in Britain, blaming it on overbearing mothers and weak fathers. It also blames the sinful act of lesbian couples grinding their genitals together on the Greek poet Sappho from the island of Lesbos. The slang term at the time for this practice was Game of Flats. You can figure out why for yourself. Sappho herself never mentioned any of this in her writings, but a few decades before, in 1715, a poem dedicated to Sappho was published called Game of Flats. Oh, an uneducated homophobe. How unusual. While discussing the 1533 Buggery Act in 1765, Justice of the Common Pleas, William Blackstone, said it was an... Offence of so dark a nature that the very mention of it is a disgrace to human nature. Well, don't mention it then. In 1835, James Pratt, age 32, and John Smith, age 34, were witnessed committing sexual acts together in the house of a friend by the landlord George Berkshire and his wife Jane. I'd like to report a lewd act I've just witnessed. What? You saw it occurring in plain sight where it may have scared the horses? Yes, well, it was through a window. Right, so an open window facing a busy street. Yes, well, it faces a brick wall, but if you climb up on my neighbour's roof and hang over the edge with your feet tied to the chimney, you can see right in. Almost. But you definitely witnessed this lewd act? Yes! Well, the, the blind was closed, but, but my wife saw them from the hallway. Your poor wife was just walking down the hallway, attending to her womanly duties of washing, ironing, folding laundry, etc., minding her own business, was confronted by this offensive sight. Yes! Well, well, well the door was closed, but she could see what was going on through the keyhole. Almost. Pratt and Smith were arrested along with their friend William Bonnell. Bonnell was sent to Australia as a convict while Pratt and Smith were both hanged despite the magistrate in the case, Hensley Wedgwood, pleading with the Home Secretary to commute the men's sentences. Wedgwood argued sodomy was the only capital crime where the level of evidence required was so low and the wealthy never seemed to get hanged. Pratt and Smith were the last people hanged for buggery in the UK. Guys, I've got one of those good news, bad news scenarios for you. What's the good news? From Friday onwards, 
we're no longer executing people for being gay. That's awesome! What's the bad news? Your execution is on Thursday. Why did you tell us the good news? Cross-dressing was criminalised in different ways all across 19th century USA. Known as the Masquerade Laws, from 1845, New York police had the ability to arrest anyone who had their face painted, discoloured, covered or concealed, or be otherwise disguised while on a road or public highway. This particular law had been created to catch farmers masquerading as Native Americans to avoid taxes, but had been subverted to harass the LGBT community. What's all the makeup for? Are you pretending to be an Indian? You do know that Indians live in India, right? All right, pretty boy. You're going to jail. Why? Is it because I make you look stupid? No, it's because you look stupid. Your lip liner is too dark, your concealer is too light, and have you even attempted to blend your foundation, punk? It just stops at your chin. From 1848, Ohio authorities had the right to arrest anyone found in a dress not belonging to his or her sex. Often these cases, once brought before a judge, were just thrown out, and the cops were well aware this would happen. The point wasn't to get convictions, it was to harass, humiliate, and inconvenience the LGBT community. Officer, why have you brought this man before my court? He was wearing a blouse. Shouldn't you be tracking down murderers? Are you insane? Those guys have guns! Throughout the 1800s, more burgeoning nations around the world continued the trend of decriminalising sodomy, while the newly formed German Empire swam against the tide in 1871 with the infamous Paragraph 175. Male-on-male love was an absolute no-no in the Empire. Sixty years later, Nazis would use Paragraph 175 to send many of their enemies and undesirables to the concentration camps. What are we going to do with the Jews? Hmm, I have an idea. We could use some of them for slave labor, scientific experiments, etc., and exterminate the rest. Brilliant, Klaus. I love it. What about the gypsies? Hmm, I have an idea. We could use some of them for slave labor, scientific experiments, etc., and exterminate the rest. Another genius idea, Klaus. What about the homosexuals? I don't like the homosexuals. Personally, I'm only attracted to women I'm related to. I love my mama too much. It's complicated. Hmm, I have an idea. We could use some of them for slave labor, scientific experiments, etc., and exterminate the rest. Klaus, where do you come up with this stuff? So original and so unique. To be honest, mein Führer, I don't know. It just comes to me. Okay, what about the Slavs? Hmm, I have an idea. We could use some of them for slave labor, scientific experiments. It is also alleged that when the concentration camps were liberated at the end of the war, the homosexual men in there were forced to serve out the rest of their sentences under paragraph 175, which was not deleted from the German law books until 1994. Hey, I'm just going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about the novel Chaos Machine by me, Judas Falling and why you might be interested in it. Look, you're not going to be surprised, but like Milton before me, I am fascinated with the aftermath of Satan's failed rebellion. So I turned it into a science fiction novel. It's a story of betrayal and rebellion set in an apocalyptic future that asks deep questions about abandoning doctrine and killing our gods in the quest for ultimate freedom. 
It features homicidal, high-tech colonisers who hear voices, primitive, bloodthirsty savages, hybrid children bred in captivity, and genderless clones with udders. What more could you possibly want? I think it's unique and original. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to this review from a verified purchaser on Amazon. I found myself unable to put it down, not only because of the story which I loved, but because of the tempo. It was as if I was caught in a tsunami that I just didn't want to get off. So there you go. I reckon you should buy the book. It sounds awesome. Clause 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 broadened the scope of Great Britain's anti-homosexual laws to include oral sex between males. Queen Victoria herself would sign off on this law the following year. Excuse me, Your Majesty. I have some documents for you to sign. What is this oral copulation? Um, it's, um, it's a bit embarrassing to discuss with your highness. Perhaps my queen might allow me to draw a diagram. Oh, and you want this to be illegal, you say? Yes, when men do it to each other. That is the consensus of Parliament. Very good. You're excused. Thank you, Your Grace. Leave the diagram, and on your way out, send it Mr. Brown. It's his birthday. In 1903, the Ariston Hotel Baths in New York were raided by police and seven men were convicted on sodomy charges. This is the Land of the Free's first recorded raid of this type. In 1913, a transgender man was brought before a New York magistrate who during sentencing said, No girl would dress immense clothing unless she is twisted in her moral viewpoint. I don't know about you, but I simply prefer trousers. I feel less... Exposed. The 1952 edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, often referred to as the DSM, classified homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance, not helpful, a diagnosis that would stand for another 20 years. The LGBT community found itself caught up in the McCarthyism of the 1950s in Cold War America. Thousands of government employees were fired or denied jobs under suspicion of their sexual orientation being questionable. A congressional subcommittee led by Senator Clyde Hoey found, It is the opinion of this subcommittee that those who engage in acts of homosexuality and other perverted sex activities are unsuitable for employment in the federal government. It was believed by Senator Joseph McCarthy and his cronies that LGBT people were more susceptible to blackmail and therefore posed a national security risk. Nebraskan Senator Kenneth Werry said, Can you think of a person who could be more dangerous to the United States of America than a pervert? Yes. Yes, I can. Secretary of Commerce Charles Sawyer wrote, The privilege of working for the United States government should not be extended to persons of dubious moral character such as homosexuals. And yet, if you were a Nazi who had, oh, I don't know, built the V2 rocket, you could totally get a job with that government. In 1952, the father of artificial intelligence and famous British wartime codebreaker Alan Turing was charged with gross indecency after a same-sex relationship had been uncovered by police. Turing was given court-mandated estrogen injections to reduce his sex drive. So, Alan, you've been on the estrogen for quite some time now. How's the libido? non-existent. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we can say we've cured your gayness. Um, yes, sure, if that's what you need to say. Any questions? Yes. What are these? Ah, those are breasts. That's what I thought. 
It is an expected side effect. Is that a problem? I'll be honest, Doctor. I'm not a fan. In 1961, the Vatican made itself clear on the subject of LGBT in this document. Those affected by the perverse inclination to homosexuality or pederasty should be excluded from religious vows or ordination. They didn't do such a great job on the pedestry side, now did they? In 1965, a group called Council on Religion and the Homosexual, established by some well-meaning Christian ministers and LGBT rights activists, held a fundraiser in San Francisco. Police intimidated attendees by photographing everyone as they entered. What are you doing? Taking photos of all you sick perverts. What are you going to do with those photos? I don't know. The chief keeps him locked up in a cabinet with bottles of scotch and some hand cream. In 1965, Everett Clippett was the last man jailed in Canada for same-sex relations. He had admitted to having consensual sex with four adult men. He was found to be incurably homosexual and served three years in prison. His appeal was heard by Canada's Supreme Court and the conviction upheld three votes to two. One of the judges who wanted to overturn the case, John Cartwright, argued if they put every man in Canada who had consenting sexual relations with another consenting adult man in prison... No one, I think, would quarrel with the suggestion that it would bring about serious overcrowding, eh? Benny Baker and Charles Talley shared a kiss on New Year's Eve 1967 in front of Californian undercover police officers... After being convicted for the heinous crime, the two men would be registered sex offenders for the rest of their lives. Knock, knock. Hi, what can I do for you? I'm Ben. I've just moved in up the street and I'm legally obliged to inform you that I'm a registered sex offender. Oh, really? What did you do? I kissed a man on New Year's Eve. (laughs) No, no, seriously, what did you do? In 1969, fed up with police harassment, the Stonewall Riots in New York took place. This was not actually the first of these public disturbances, but it is certainly the most famous. It is also a bit of a watershed moment in LGBT history, and I think a good place to end part two of this series. As we've seen, the trend in the legal sense has been mostly heading in one direction, and that trend accelerates from here on. Don't get me wrong, we've still got 50 years of blood, sweat and tears ahead of us there are still many obstacles and setbacks for acceptance of LGBT people in the greater community. But you know what? That acceptance is inevitable. Resistance is futile and idiotic. Five years after Stonewall, the reaction to the LGBT revolution gets going, and that is where the third and final installment of this series will focus. It's what this podcast was created for, making fun of conspiracy theorists and venting my frustration at superstitious morons whose silly beliefs are still allowed to impact the lives of the rest of us. And that's why Satan is my superhero. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, you know the drill. But more importantly, please recommend this show to just one person. I mean literally one person. Choose that person well. Sextus does not give us any caveats about differentiating, 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 different caveats about differentiating, differentiating, caveats about differentiating, differentiating, caveats about differentiating, differentiating, caveats about differentiating, oh, I can't do it.